this is Dr. Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And together with my co-editor, Dr. Brian Lacey from the Mayo Clinic, it's my pleasure to host this month's podcast for the Red Journal. And we're going to have Dr. Christopher or Chris Ma with us today to present a very interesting and important new study that was published in the Red Journal entitled Gender Disparities in Food Security, Dietary Intake, and Nutritional Health in the United States. So Chris, thank you very much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brennan. So this is a topic that we often don't discuss in gastroenterology, and that's partly why we thought it was important to publish this paper, because it's extremely important, but easily overlooked in the process of clinical care. And this is the issue of food insecurity. And what is our role as gastroenterologists in assessing for food insecurity or acting on it? What are the implications of food insecurity for our GI patients? And what are the predictors of food insecurity? And are there differences by gender, which is really the focus of your paper? So before we get too far, maybe you can tell our listeners what is food insecurity and and why should a GI doctor know about this? Thanks very much, Brennan, for having me. It's a real pleasure for me to be here and certainly always a privilege to publish in the Red Journal. Food insecurity is, like you mentioned, I think really sometimes a problem we think about at either a primary care level or on a public health level. But I think it is really an important component of the GI assessment. It's defined by insufficient or inadequate access to food that's safe, healthy, and nutritious. And that results really in either poor food quality or poor food quantity. In some situations, it requires people to access food through unacceptable means. So it is a a really important health issue for all patients, I think. As gastroenterologists, there's a natural link between food and between the GI assessment. Almost all of our patients ask us about diet and what they should or shouldn't eat. And if we're to be able to give good advice around that, I think we do need to have a good understanding of where they are at from a food security perspective. I was amazed in the introduction that where you talked about the prevalence of food insecurity, particularly in the United States, as I recall, that one in 10 households is affected by food insecurity. And that ends up being about 50 million Americans that are affected by, by food insecurity. That's pretty astonishing. It's an incredible stat line, I think, because if you think about what the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the words food insecurity, I think often people think about the situation in developing countries, whereas the United States is one of the most affluent countries in the world. And yet it's still a extremely prevalent problem. And it affects not just individuals, it affects entire families. And so I think it really is one of the things that should be spotlighted from a public health perspective that maybe doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Now, I should note, I uh, forgot to mention in the intro, you're, you're an assistant professor at the University of Calgary. So you're up in Canada. Is this something that's as relevant in Canada as it is in the United States? I've been very lucky to work with lots of American collaborators and do part of my training in the U.S. So it's something that I've seen on both sides of the border. And, and we have the same problems in Canada, despite sort of differences in what our social structures look like or what our health systems look like. We similarly face challenges with making sure that people have access to healthy and nutritious food. And that is 
in some ways exacerbated in Canada because we have lots of rural communities where, especially in the far north, where access to food may not be sort of as readily available as it is in, in major urban centers. But certainly it's a problem that I think spans geopolitical borders, affects both developed and developing countries. I just want to briefly, before we get into the details of your study, go back to that definition and highlight something, at least for my sake. So food insecurity is not just inadequate access to food. It's inadequate access to healthy and high quality nutritious food. So somebody, for example, who may have the means to eat, but is eating fast food or, you know, calorically dense, high unhealthy foods could still be considered to be food insecure. And in, in, in the discussion section of your paper, you talk about conditions like non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and how food insecurity could really affect that if the food being consumed is fast food, for example. Just to help us understand that sort of dimension of food insecurity. Yeah, it's an interesting component to it because, it, again, I think it speaks to the complexity around this specific issue. You're right, food insecurity has innate link to literacy with respect to health. So if you can't identify what are the right foods to be eating, not being able to afford food alone it isn't the only challenge. So you're absolutely right. I think there's sort of multiple different facets to being food secure. It's being able to afford food, being able to get access to that food, and being able to know what the right food is to be taking in. And all of those things, there are multiple different factors that impact all three of those components. It's not as simple as being able to go to the grocery store and get to the checkout aisle. Right. right. So with that in mind, you did a, a study of just over 30,000 people using data from the famous NHANES database. Maybe tell us a little bit about NHANES and more broadly, just the methods that you used in this study. Yeah, so NHANES is a very well-known study in the United States. It's a survey-based study that is done on an annual basis, but results are reported every two years. It really is aimed at characterizing the health and nutritional status of the American population. And we used NHANES from 2007 to 2016. It's a stratified survey that includes multiple components. So one of the components is detailed questionnaires about participant health and the health of the general U.S. population. And that includes things like how secure their access to food is and what other medical conditions they may have, as well as a number of demographic features like their income, their occupational status, their family structure, and factors like that. Uh, in addition to that questionnaire piece, there's also a physical exam and laboratory component where there are specially designed mobile examination centers that go out to different sites throughout the United States. That team includes a physician as well as trained interviewers and technicians, and they perform focused physical examinations as well as taking uh, laboratory data for selected items that change year to year in the end. And then lastly, there is a very detailed dietary component to the NHANES survey. And that includes dietary recall of what participants have eaten over the last 24 hours. They do that twice in the NHANES survey uh, to really try and get a good idea of what participants are consuming sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a very comprehensive survey. Um, they survey about 5,000 people each year, and it provides really high-quality information about the health status and the nutritional status of adults in the United States. So it's a rich database, had a lot of information about a lot of people. So what were your main results? Yeah, so we wanted to characterize a number of things. 
the first thing we wanted to look at was what is the state of food insecurity in the United States, especially whether there were differences between men and women. I think the reason that we wanted to focus on that question is because food insecurity can affect men and women differently. Even though societal roles are changing over time, there are many places where women still hold traditional household roles that make them potentially more susceptible to food security or food insecurity, I should say. In total, we looked at just over 30,000 uh, respondents in NHANES, and about 15% of participants were living in a food insecure household. And when you apply the survey weights to that to look at what that means in terms of the population, that actually works out to a huge number of uh, participants who are living in a food insecure home. Because even though we looked at 30,000 uh, direct participants, that data is survey weighted to almost 230 million Americans. So if you think about 15% of them being food insecure, that, that's a, a very high number. We also showed that there was a slight difference in what the proportion of participants who are food insecure who are men versus women. So there was a slightly higher percentage of women who were food insecure, just over 50% compared to men, which was just under 48%. And then finally, we looked at whether, the, whether food insecurity affected women versus men differently. And we showed that, in fact, actually, when women were food insecure, that had a different impact on both their nutritional intake as well as their anthropometric measurements. So you did notice that there was a difference by gender, mm -hmm. but I also noted that that difference disappeared after you adjusted for other factors, in particular adjusting for poverty levels and other confounders. When you did that, there no longer was a difference uh, in food insecurity by gender. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. In the multivariable analysis, we looked at sort of a number of different a priori selected factors for uh, that could contribute to food insecurity with gender being one of them. And you're right, the unadjusted proportion of women who were food insecure was higher than in men. But in the multivariable analysis, gender alone was not an independent predictor. And I think that actually speaks to the fact that you know, when we think about what are the, is there something inherent about being, about women that is different than men that contributes to food insecurity? It's probably not the gender itself. It's probably the other associated factors that contribute to food insecurity. So those are things most prominently certainly is income and poverty. Patients who were living below the poverty line, they were the most likely to be food insecure. But there were other factors as well. So those relate to race, to age, to level of education, and to family structure. So women who were widowed, separated, or divorced in those women were even more likely to be in situations where they were going to experience food insecurity. So I think the multivariate analysis really speaks to some of these other societal and socioeconomic factors that drive food insecurity. As I listen to you talk about this important topic and I review the paper, for our listeners, I think if nothing else, it's really vital to open our collective eyes to this pervasive public health issue. To recognize, as you demonstrate in the paper, that the prevalence of food insecurity has been rising, not falling. It's been rising over the years that you analyzed during this period, which was 2007 to 2016, I think. Yeah. Um, what do you think COVID-19 is doing to all of this? That's, of course, outside of your data set here. But 
you know, we talk about income inequality, we talk about the haves and the have-nots in this country, and the widening disparities across all sorts of parameters in life, whether it's access to food, access to other resources, housing. And now we throw in something disruptive like COVID. Do you have any sense of what that's doing to these disturbing trends that you find in this paper? It's a great question. And I think certainly one of the you know really pressing public health needs of our current time. In our paper, we look at factors like poverty level. That's not a necessarily a best measure for secure and stable access to food because it doesn't account for some of these dynamic changes that can happen. And you throw something like COVID in the mix, it has had a dramatic impact on many families' income, on housing availability and security. And I think food insecurity certainly will be a major problem for, and already has been a major problem for many families during this pandemic. It impacts all of those other socioeconomic factors that drive people to be unable to access healthy, nutritious food. The number of strains that people have on their on income. In terms of family structure, many families are having to manage kids at home now if they're not in schools. There's a number of different parameters, I think, all which stress patients who are food insecure. And we have talked about food insecurity sort of as either they're secure or not secure, but it really is not is a spectrum of whether you're highly secure, potentially marginally secure, or low or very low in terms of security. And if you're in that marginal group where, you know, before COVID you were just making it, you throw in a number of these other factors and all of a sudden you're just too many plates spinning at that point and food security becomes one of the things that can go. So I think certainly it's going to push lots of lots of families who are in that marginal zone further into the low or, or very low food security brackets. Right. Now, just as a closing thought here, something our listeners can sort of take with them to the clinic, you emphasize that clinicians should really consider screening for food insecurity. And although we might think of that as sort of a primary care role, it shouldn't be relegated to any one particular type of provider. And GI doctors should be just as interested, if not more, given our focus on nutritional health. You described sort of a simple two-item screening questionnaire, which just seems very easy to administer. This is two questions. Do yeah. uh, you want to bring us through what those questions are? Yeah. So it's, it's a very simple screening tool. It identifies the majority of patients who are food insecure. And it really is just two things. The first thing is, in the last year, were you worried that your food would run out before you got more money to buy more food? Or two, did the food that you bought, did it not last and did you not have money to get more? Those two questions, positive responses to those two questions should really prompt you to think about this topic. And it, we mentioned at the start, it has implications from a diagnostic perspective for many GI conditions. It has implications for treatment recommendations, especially for conditions that are diet sensitive. And there's a number of those in GI that we think about. And so because of that, I think it's a two item screen It'll take you less than 30 seconds. Appreciate that everyone has a busy practice. Um, but this is something that's simple and it can, I think, really help identify those patients who are potentially need help.
Well, it seems vital. I mean, you think about all the conditions where diet matters in our, you know, obviously celiac disease is a not uncommon condition that is highly diet dependent. And if somebody can't get access to high quality food, it's, it's sort of, that's the first thing you need to know before we start sending people to dietitians. Can they even engage in the recommendations at all? Or low FODMAP diets with IBS or low fat diets with uh, obviously for obesity, go through several examples in the conclusions. So I recommend those listeners who are interested in this topic, which hopefully is uh, everybody, that you take a quick look at this paper, which again is uh, published in the special issue. It's the women's health issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And again, the title is Gender Disparities in Food Security, Dietary Intake and Nutritional Health in the United States by Chris Ma and colleagues from the University of Calgary. And I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today to walk us through this important topic and to give our listeners some pragmatic advice on how to act upon the results in your paper. So thanks again for being with us today. Thanks so much, Dr. Spiegel. And on behalf of Brian Lacey and all the editors of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, again, this is Brendan Spiegel signing off for this month's podcast. Take care and be well. <music>